how could you not have a million things to write about? You know, what did what did your Aunt Clara just say to you on the phone? How did you feel about that? Is it going to affect your life? Is it going to change? Is it going to, you know, is it going to give you college tuition? Is it going to make you miserable? Why? I, I mean, it's a silly, silly example, but anything happening in your life. I'm, who did you see in the supermarket this morning? Mm-hmm. Did, you know, did they have one leg? <laughs> um, you know, were they, did they have one leg and they wanted to clean your windshields for you as mm-hmm. you came out? You know, what'd you think about that? How would you, what would you do if you had one leg? I mean, you know, this, it all relates, inter, interrelates. And, and there's, a journal is an amazingly effective tool to figure out your life. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Feeding Curiosity. I'm your host, Eric Wenzel, as always. Feeding Curiosity is a podcast that explores the precarity of human experience, and we challenge ourselves and others to think, question, and synthesize wherever our curiosity takes us. It is through these conversations that we provide blueprints for others to learn and lead a more fulfilling life. My guest today on the podcast is Deirdre Wolinick. Deirdre is an unstoppable force when it comes to understanding who she is and what she is capable of. Since 1971, she has taught five foreign languages on three continents and recently retired from the American River College near her home in Carmichael, California. And she's also done freelance writing and appeared in magazines worldwide. And on top of already this list of accomplishments, she has been a musician all her life and founded the West Sacramento Community Orchestra. And the cherry on top of all of this is at the age 55, she became a long distance runner and her career includes marathons and half marathons and other races. At age 58, she began rock climbing and at age 66, she became the oldest woman to climb Yosemite's El Capitan. And if this story wasn't already crazy enough, she is the mother of Alex Honnold, the world's most prolific rock climber. He is the star of the film Free Solo, where he climbs El Capitan with no climbing equipment. It's incredible. And in some ways, this conversation shows why or how someone can be as incredible at what they do. And Deirdre is fascinating in, in what she pro- provides to people. Her outlook on the world and, and being able to push back on norms of how people assume you should be. And also the power of writing. Because she really believes that what you tell yourself informs what you're capable of doing. When you say, oh, I'm supposed to be this, or I should be that, that's other person's value. And she says, write your own story. Or that's what she would say after talking to her. And so with that, everyone, please enjoy this conversation with Deirdre Molinick. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Feeding Curiosity. And in today's episode, we are joined by Deirdre Wolinick. 
I think I got it that time. You got it. Yep. <laughs> well, thank you for joining me on the podcast here, Deidre. To start, let's just go in and talk about, you know, who you are and what do you do? My name is Deirdre Walnick. I am all kinds of things. The most recent is an author of a book called The Sharp End of Life. It just came out this year. It's an exciting read. And it's an exciting read because of the second thing I am. I am Alex Honnold's mom. Alex Honnold is a name that a lot of people know nowadays because of the, the Oscar-winning movie called Free Solo. If you watch that on the edge of your seat, you're not alone. So Alex's mom, poor mom. That's my. That's uh, mostly what I'm known for these days. I'm also a, a language professor many, many years, and I've been writing freelance all my life and artist and musicians. Lots of things. Lots of things. <laughs> yeah, it's it's honestly one of those things that when I hear people's bios like that, where it's just wide ranging and many hats, uh-huh. I tend to scratch my head. Because <laughs> we tend to pick a thing or society tells us to pick a thing and we focus right. on that one thing. And when you start straying right. out of that box, you know, people look at you and say, why are you not staying in your own lane? Which I don't like. And I wonder how yeah. you feel about that. I've never liked that either. Even when I was a kid, I n- never thought that was a good idea. Yeah, well, life is life is just too interesting. <laughs> was it something that like... Your, maybe your parents had like guided you upon or was it just your own natural mm-hmm. curiosity for the world to, to, to just explore it as you saw fit? Yeah, definitely not for my parents. I mean, my parents were old, old world and mm-hmm. you know, girls were, uh, girls grew up to become either secretary or teacher or nurse. That was about it. Oh. And, and then you stopped doing that when you got married, you know? So I'm from the old school. <laughs> yeah. So no, it was just, it was just me, I guess. I just, I, life is just too interesting. I just wanted to do everything, you know? And uh, I guess I got an early start. I've been doing a lot of stuff all my life. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting to to hear the, the pushback because I, I forget, you know, with how much you've done that, you're, you know, you are from a different time period, you know, before yes. the internet yes. and before, yes. you know, all this interconnectivity and, Right, because right. I, I find myself attracted to the people that are exploring without boundaries. You know, even if yes, even if you don't get there, would you say there was a progression for you to be okay with exploring beyond, especially given where you grew up, where you know your parents said you could be only you know one of three things? Was it a slow yeah. progression, or did you just immediately just like, nope, I'm just not going to do that? <laughs> I'm not sure what you mean by progression, but. It was definitely slow to develop, but, you know, one step at a time, but, but mm-hmm. I always loved trying stuff and I, that's, you know, that's the main part of it. I just love trying new stuff, learning new stuff, being new places. And, and, you know, when I went to college, I, I did a junior, my junior year in France and kind of got a taste for, you know, seeing the world mm-hmm. and experiencing different a different every I grew up experiencing different cultures in New York City. I grew up in New York after World War II. New York was filled with people from all over the world escaping the war, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was it, it was largely on 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 our side of the continent. It was largely a European war. So, you know, I grew up using many different languages and and eating different foods and you know all different cultures. So it was just sort of, like you said, yeah, I guess progression is a good word for it. Just get, got bigger and bigger and more 
diverse. I hate that word diverse, <laughs> the way they use it nowadays. But mm-hmm. but yeah, it was just it was a gradual progression. Yeah, that that's interesting because I, I forget the the emotional mindset of what it would be like to to live within the shadow of a world war like that, where you're escaping from somewhere. Right. Um, right. Right. Yeah, everybody was just so happy. Everybody was just so happy then to have a job yeah. and to have a home and all that stuff. You didn't dare want more. Can you elaborate yeah, on what but, it was like for your parents to kind of, you know, escape that or just? Well, my my father was in World War Two. He was in stationed in North Africa, and by the time he got back and all the other friends who survived got back and you know family and all that, they didn't want any anything else. They just wanted a stable, safe secure home, you know, and that was the mindset really in that part of the world back then. They just, the, the goal, the, the entire goal of life was security. I, they lived through what, seven, eight years of, of world war. Mm-hmm. And so I think to them, like the entire goal of life was security. That's yeah. what you went for. And, and we, we didn't feel that way. You know, we, the kids are the next generation as well that we didn't feel that way. And they never understood that. <laughs> you know, I felt sorry in retrospect, I feel sorry for them because they never understood, uh, you know, what we wanted because they didn't see that as necessary. So, yeah. So I, uh, anyway, but, uh, they had all these, they had all these, like you said, like you called them boxes, you know, mm-hmm. we were supposed to do this. We were supposed to do that. And I never bought into any of that, but, but I yeah. had to. I had to stick around for many years because you know my mother was handicapped and okay. and I was the girl, so I was kind of her helper, you know, her her hands and feet, as it were. So I, you know, I had to do that. That was my job, and so I did. And and I just kind of, kind of buried everything else for many years, and uh, that, that changed little by little. And I went out into the world and started doing some of the things I always wanted to do. Life became a lot more interesting. <laughs> What was the first thing that really captured your interest where you decided that you were going to go set out on your own? Well, it's not exactly like that. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I did become grow up to become a teacher, you know, but not because of what they said, but because I loved teaching. You know, I just loved it. And I was originally going to go into music because I'm, I'm a performing musician. I always have been and I always love it. And, but, but they always, they hammered away at this, this thing that, you know, every, every high school or whatever, wherever you're going to teach, every school has one music teacher, but you know, four or five of everything else. So mm-hmm. your job possibilities are better somewhere, you know? So, so I went into languages, which also fascinated me. And cause I had been speaking, you know, and hearing many languages all my life. Mm-hmm. And so once I did that, once I became a, a language teacher. I started started out teaching high school, and every year, every summer, for my progress, my my professional betterment, I would go to Europe and uh, practice all my languages. I taught French, Spanish, and Italian. Wow! And I was also and I was also the musical director at the high school. So we put on musicals at the end of the year, and and I would conduct the orchestra, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so I, I, I really needed to go to Europe for my job, and uh, uh, you know, to make myself more better at what I did. So I would, and, and I met all kinds of people and I had all kinds of experiences that opened the world to me in Mm -hmm. so many ways. It was so exciting. And, uh, you know, I started to get glimpses of other things that I might like to do. And and it just, it was like you said, it was, it was a progression, very Mm -hmm. slow progression. It sounds almost like a kaleidoscope, you know, you, you, you enter into one thing, like you have a vehicle and your vehicle sounded like music and language. 
that yeah. just kept opening yeah. more and more doors that were connected to those exactly. things. For for me, it's interesting because I I, I was never super inter- interested in, in language, at least in high school for myself. But I've always uh-huh. – so my mom is second-generation Polish. So I've always – Oh, really? Huh. Yeah, so I've always heard spoken Polish growing up, but I don't know it myself. So you should have been able to say my name better. <laughs> I know. I should have. It's because I was recording it, so I was in my own head trying to make sure I said it right. 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 <laughs> Performance anxiety. So I've always kind of had this thing about languages that it doesn't sound weird to me to hear other like other foreign languages, which I, I never really and registered. It yeah, and it shouldn't. And now I've been using Duolingo to actually learn languages. I'm on like a 48-day streak. I'm going to try and do it for a whole year Uh just to try and continue to keep learning languages because I think, you know, committing to the process, not the outcome, is is kind of one of my mantras that I'm using right now. And I I would just love for you to like elaborate on like how to get, you know, maybe someone who, who might see a language as a requirement, you know, for like high school or something. And how do you explain it to them in a different way that makes language something that's not just a requirement? Language is a requirement. When we're born, we, <laughs> we start learning language. Touché. And every, every uh, yeah, and every human being is born with, with that internal decoder mm-hmm. uh, you know, that allows them to figure out language. That's all around them. Mm-hmm. And that's how we do it. We figure out language listening to the sounds all around us. So the best way to learn another language is to be surrounded by it. So if you can take a month, go to Spain or Mexico or whatever, or in Spanish, go to Italy, you know, mm-hmm. that's absolutely the best way is to be surrounded by it and to be alone. Don't go with, with an English speaking friend, mm-hmm. just go there and have to function in Italian or Greek or whatever it is. You know, mm-hmm. that's the absolute best way. So do you believe an immersion is the best way to, yeah, to, yeah. to that's learn what anything? I'm describing. Just, yeah. just, oh, absolutely. Because <laughs> that's what I'm really getting. Absolutely. You, you can't just like yeah. read it in a textbook or, you know. No, no, no. You have to no, dive language in. is definitely an, language is an organic thing that grows with you, grows with your brain. And, and no, you have to be surrounded by it. You have to, you have to, you have to, have to use it. You know, if, if you don't have to, you won't. Your brain will get lazy. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, so, I love that. It's, it's yeah. it sounds a lot like math, you know. And it's as I yeah yeah. There's a lot of mathematics in language, an awful lot. It, it's really funny because like as I've really immersed myself in the language, I'm actually reading German or learning German for my mm-hmm. own because my name is very German, even though I'm half Polish. Yeah, yeah. I I've always just had this draw to learn the language, and as I've been exposed to different things, it's how you, what languages you know or languages you, you use is like the lens at which you decode the world, like you were saying. And- absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> people who have no clue, you know, people who are monolingual have no clue what they're missing. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's so sad. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, it, it really limits your world and people don't, don't think about it that way. Americans say, oh, English for I only need English. You know, when you go abroad, oh, Everybody speaks English. You don't need it. You know, that's so untrue. <laughs> yeah. It so limits your world. Yeah. For me, it's, it's, I feel like it builds an empathy where if you're able to go right. and meet right. someone with right. their language, you immediately disarm exactly. them. And they say, wait, you respect. Oh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, it's a source of respect. Exactly. So I don't know right. where I'm actually headed with this, but how would you, hmm, I'm not sure like it's teaching is the right word, but just being able to, I guess, 
draw someone in to become more of a world citizen, I guess is the, is the idea. When I was in school, well, like, you know, grammar school and high school, I always believed, and this has never changed, that every student in this country at some level, probably junior high or high school, high school would probably be more beneficial, but every student in this country should have to spend a semester abroad in a school mm-hmm. in another country. That would do. That would accomplish what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I would agree. I mean, I, I've grown up in the Midwest my whole life, and the Midwest is we're notorious um, for planting very deep roots. And yeah, yeah, we yeah. don't move. Like my parents kind of right, got right, here, and right. and then they, to, and that's it. <laughs> to travel, it's like car distance. You know, maybe one state in every direction, and that's about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So it's, yeah. it's, so it had, it like, honestly, it took podcasts to kind of like break out of that Midwestern bubble and be like, oh, wow, look at the, the world is much, much bigger. There's, there's <laughs> a fascinating world out there. There really is. Yeah. Americans are, are very, very insular, which mm-hmm. is unfortunate. Yeah. Is there any recommendations just for people like Americans in general, like any, cause the majority of the people who listen to this podcast are American. Would you recommend mm-hmm. taking the baby steps to become more comfortable with the uncomfortable, you know, maybe it is travel or maybe it isn't travel. Mm-hmm. With language, you mean? Yeah. Either language or just traveling, you know, becoming more comfortable to get outside of your well, known actually, space. Funny. You should, funny. You should mention that because my next book that I'm working on right now, it talks about that. It's, it's, it deals with how to raise children to become, better stewards of our planet. Oh, okay. And a, and, and a good part of that is to take them other places, mm-hmm. take them on the road. I mean, children, especially very small children, they don't have a normal, mm-hmm. you know, children come into this world, they have no clue what to expect. They, they, they do not have a normal. So if you start them traveling when they're born, when they're little, I mean, literally when they're born, but I mean, you know, a few months later, but if you start them traveling very, very young before they can walk, they just take that in their stride. That's normal to them. Mm -hmm. And then the world is open to them more so than it has had been to their parents, perhaps, you know, and then that becomes normal and and it's nothing to fear. You know, Mm -hmm. most Americans are afraid to go to New York city because there's so much crime and they're afraid (laughs) to go to Paris because of this and that. And it's just so ridiculous. People are the same everywhere. You know, people are people anywhere you go. Human beings are human beings. And, and they get set in, like you, you were talking about Japan, you get set in their ways and they figure, well, this is, this is the only way, you know, mm-hmm. but, but there are a million different ways on this planet to do everything, to eat. I mean, have did Greek food, do you like it or not? Why? You know, if there's a million different ways to dress, a million different ways to raise children. You know, there, there's like in, in Japan, the little kids who go to school learn to, there are no school janitors in Japan. The children do it. And so if they grow up oh, wow. keeping the place clean for, for each other, then they're not going to throw trash on the floor because they know that they're going to have to clean it up. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, taking so there's a million different. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So there's a million different ways to do everything. And, and if you get kids traveling early, you know, very, very young, then that becomes the normal. And they see that 
that that the world is fascinating and interesting and and everybody's different and yet everybody's the same. Everybody wants the same things. They want a little security, they want food, they want, you know, pursuit of happiness. Everybody, everywhere. Mm-hmm. I, I find it really fascinating because, you know, the like you were saying with little kids that, that they don't have a normal yet. So whatever environment right. that they're in or if if, if right. that environment is constantly changing or at least they're able to adapt more right. readily where right. they, they grow up. Right. Mm, exactly. Um, they grow up learning to adapt. And that's so important for the brain. And that's mm-hmm. so important for learning language. Anyway, <laughs> no, it's all related. <laughs> yeah. My, my brain is like thinking right now in real time because I find like parenting as like a, like a in quotes job is one of the most important things that we don't spend a lot of time talking about. And I'm not saying like parenting advice. Wait, wait, wait. wait. What do you, what do you mean in quotes job? It's the most important job on the planet. Well, that's what I mean. But job makes it sound, (laughs) well, job makes it sound like it's like something you have, like you, it's just work, you know, where like job is, is not, makes it sound like, as opposed to pleasure, like fulfilling, you know, because I think parenting should be one of the most fulfilling, you know, I don't have kids yet, but, it's, I yeah. still think yeah, it's yeah. one of those jobs we should think about more often and like actually have meaningful. Right. Absolutely. Um, That's what my next book is about, you know, thinking, uh, how do you want to raise these new little people so that they love the planet and will take care of it, mm-hmm. you know? So and, I, I don't want you to ex- explain the book, but it, is there yeah, any like yeah, yeah. one topic that you would like to expand on? Uh, well, travel is one, a big one, you know, getting kids out into the world so that they can see where all this plastic goes and they can see how many birds are dying because they're eating trash and how many, you know, you can't see that sitting home Mm -hmm. and you won't, you know, if they're, if they've never walked under the redwood trees, never smelled them and never heard the the almost religious like silence under those trees, Mm -hmm. they're not going to get too upset when they read, you know, later on that some company is going to cut them down. But if they've been there, they will understand, mm-hmm. you know, so travel feeds a lot of both the book and, and child raising. It, it's like the, the idea that ignorance is bliss. If, if everything exactly. around you, exactly. if everything exactly. around you seems normal, then you're not going to go yeah. and challenge if there right. is these, you know, the trash Island in the middle of the Pacific or. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Would you. Have you always been drawn to nature or this idea of stewardship? Yes, I have actually. I've always been, you know, the hiker in the family, and mm-hmm. and my friends would follow me out into the woods because they knew how that I knew how to get out there and how to get back. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just and I, and I read, read a lot about it. You know, reading is another key to raising thoughtful children is mm-hmm. to get them reading to read to them when they're little and then to get them reading. Reading opens the world in mm-hmm. so many ways. And so, yeah, I, I grew up reading, you know, Jack London and White Fang and Silver okay. Sheen, King of Sled Dogs and all those things <laughs> that, that open the world of nature to me. Okay. Yeah. That's, Always loved it. That's really interesting because, you know, it, it obviously you had to have some sort of connection to nature or otherwise I don't think your son would have gotten into rock climbing, but it's fascinating for me because as I've gotten older, I've been more and more drawn to nature myself, 
even as an engineer, Mm -hmm. it's almost like an antidote to my hyper materialistic and, you know, surrounded by machines and noise all the time. It's interesting to think about it that way now. Yeah. Mother nature is an antidote to most of our ills really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Would you care to maybe, you know, three to five books that have impacted you or like, would you gifted the most possibly? for maybe someone who wants to explore the um, world or even it doesn't have to be in specific for nature, but just general. <laughs> well, of, <laughs> I was looking at that question earlier. <laughs> a lot of those, a lot of those books, a lot of the books that influenced me the most, the absolute most were way, way, way back when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I still read, of course I, I read, I write, but, but when I was little, uh, say at grammar school age, we called it grammar school back yeah. then, because we used to learn grammar every year. <laughs> <laughs> Sherlock, the Sherlock Holmes books by Arthur Conan Doyle, mm-hmm. that opened my world in so many ways. If you read those, you learn so much about the world. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the nefarious characters, you know, the the criminals in those books, not just the criminals, but a lot of the characters were from other countries, you know, Sherlock Holmes, of course, was England, but yeah. England back then was, you know, ruled the world and all that. And so I learned about Asia. I learned about all kinds of parts of Europe. I learned about Africa, things about culture, things about food and words. And the vocabulary in those books is amazing. I learned so much vocabulary from reading those books that, that has stayed with me until, until now. And, and about backtracking to the theme of nature, reading like about Silver Sheen, The King of Sled Dogs, or White Fang by Jack London, or and I grew up also reading have you ever heard of Albert Payson Terhune? No, I have not heard, heard of that one. one. No. Nobody's ever heard of Terhune. But Terhune I, I, I don't know much about him, the author, mm-hmm. but I know the books by heart. But he I think was a New Yorker. His books take place I think on Long Island. Oh, out wow. on the island. So out and out, out on Long Island is nature. I mean, it's, it's the woods and, you know, beaches and things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's nature. And the, the characters in all her, his books are dogs. Um, Lad, a dog. You ever heard of Lad, a dog? That's by him and, you know, collies and anyway, but, but the dogs were people in these books. They were characters. And from all of those books, I learned, cause I didn't have, I, I, as I started to say, I, I was kind of housebound with my mother. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, my main job was to be good, stay home. And, and when she hollered, I would hop to it, you know, and she needed something down the cellar. I ran down the cellar and got it, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, so I didn't really have a whole bunch of friends outdoors. I mean, we played outdoors of course, but, but a lot of my life was reading, writing, piano, you know, playing oh. music. And so from these dogs as characters, i learned all about empathy and about what integrity of, of person, compassion, all that mm-hmm. stuff that, you know, that, that I guess normal people get from reading books about people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then like through high school, I read a, a lot of science fiction, mm-hmm. but the good science, the, the quality stuff, you know, not, there's a lot of trash out there too, but, <laughs> but like, you know, like Asimov and, and Arthur C. Clarke mm-hmm. and, and all the, the big names, the granddaddies of science fiction, they were all writing back then. And, uh, you know, I, I read them all. I devoured those. And if you've ever read good science fiction, they're, they're amazing. They, they, they explore philosophy mm-hmm. and politics and, you know, emotional balance, how to, how to, how to live a good life, you know, mm-hmm. all, all the biggies, all the big themes in life are in, in good science fiction, <laughs> you know, the good stuff. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I have 
a slew of books that influenced me in so many ways that way. But And then little by little, I graduated to reading about real people. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it sounds really similar to my, my trajectory too, because I didn't really read much nonfiction until I basically got into college. I, I was reading uh-huh. mostly uh-huh. science fiction and thriller novels <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for myself. And then it didn't really get into yeah. like yeah. heavy hitting or idea writing for a long time. I mean, it, um, I, I still prefer fiction. Mm-hmm. I think I always will. You know? Interesting. But it, even though I'm, even though I'm writing nonfiction, mostly, <laughs> but, but, but I still prefer reading fiction. I mean, fiction mm-hmm. takes you to, you know, boundless worlds and you can make the world whatever you want in a, in a fiction book. But I've changed to reading about people rather than dogs or, or horses, you know. Yeah. <laughs> now it's, but it's a little bit different. Would, would you say that, like, fiction books as a whole, and I was almost going to say that science fiction almost allow you to imagine a world that could be, or right. Oh yeah. A positive sure. or negative too. Right. So like it, it allows you right. to take a thing and turn it up to like 11 and say, Ooh, right. <laughs> right. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There's no limit to the imagination. And if you've ever read Orson Scott card, you know, those books, I don't know that one. Ender's game. I know Ender's game. Yes. <laughs> you do. Yeah. Well, he, he wrote a whole slew of books. He wrote a whole, I don't know, hundreds of books. Wow. They're all, they're all like that. They all open the imagination mm-hmm. to, you know, wonder, huh, I wonder if you could do that. I wonder what if, you know? Yeah. I love books like that. I, I think of a lot of books like that, you know, the science fiction in, in the uh, 70s or and so or like around that area with yeah. like the Isaac Asimov's yeah. and stuff like that that kind of captured the ten- attention of all those science guys that were building Silicon Valley that, you know, right. the world right. that w- could be. And then now you look at it, you know, 40 years later and all of a sudden yeah. it looks like all yeah. that technology's kind of kind of come true. And it's like, this was yeah, science yeah. fictions at one point. <laughs> you know, right. Boggles the brain. Boggles the brain. Yeah. Yeah. That's one thing I find fascinating about doing this feeding curiosity thing. Like sometimes all it takes is planting a seed in some way for people to say, maybe I could, that could be real. Right. Or asking yourself yeah, the, the yeah. what if, yeah. and then it sets you down yeah, a path yeah. to make it actually something. Um, it's kind of like kind of like going up El Cap. <laughs> yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, we, I, we do definitely got to talk one, about yeah. your climbing. <laughs> right, right. One thing I did not mention when I said who I am at the beginning, uh, I'm the oldest woman to ever climb El Capitan in Yosemite. So what and was that, the process like for that? <laughs> yeah, the process, it was a long process. <laughs> Absolutely. I've only, I've only been climbing for, rock climbing for 10 years-ish, more mm-hmm. or less. And, uh, I, and I started because, Basically, I wanted to understand my son's world. You know, I didn't. Okay. I had no clue what he was doing when he would go out on these expeditions. I didn't know what he, where he was, what he was doing, who he was doing it with. What, mm-hmm. you know, I, it was a language I didn't speak yet. And uh-huh. I, I, I always like to know what's going on around me. And, you know, all these climbers would come through my house, you know, on the way to the airport or on the way to his friends, you know, and they'd hang out here and talk and talk. And I, I had no clue what they were talking about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I, I don't like that. I like to, uh, you know, you know, me a language person. So, so I decided to learn what climbing was about, and I had him take me to the gym, the climbing gym here in Sacramento, mm-hmm. about ten years ago, and just just to show me what things were called and what you know all the vocabulary was. And, and I figured maybe I'd do a, a half a wall and yeah. find out what it was like to tie in and to put the harness on and all that stuff. 
Well, as it turned out, I did like 12 walls that day <laughs> and uh, disco- discovered that I love it. And and because I, I had loved climbing as a kid. You, you'll have to read, you'll have to read my book. I do. I definitely so do. In there. Um, the sharp end of life. It go, goes into all of these things. But I loved climbing when I was a little kid, but I was a little girl. And this is, I was supposed to behave myself and wear dresses and, you know, all that stuff, which I hated. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I loved it. But I, tamped it all down so I, you know, could stay at home with my mother and mm-hmm. be a good little girl. But, uh, but it was, it, it was, it was still there latent, you know? And mm-hmm. so I, it came back out. And, uh, so I've been gone about 10 years and about three years ago, every year for my birthday, Alex takes me on a climb. That's, <laughs> that's mind shattering for me. I mean, okay. for him, it's babysitting. Right. For him, it's just babysitting. You know, he doesn't even put on his climbing shoes when he climbs with me. But sometimes, but for me, it's always earth shattering. Mm-hmm. You know, literally, it just blows my mind, and, and I come home a different person. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's every September. My birthday's in September, and that's prime season in Yosemite. You know, so I know he's always going to be there. So we do that. And so about three years ago, he took me up this. Do you know what a big wall is in climbing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in climbing, a bit basically for your listeners, a big wall is uh, you know it's a it's a rock wall that usually takes most climbers more than a day to go okay. to go summit, and so you have to sleep on the wall and carry all your gear and stuff. So that's a big wall. So Alex and I did a big wall about three years ago, and but Alex, as a lot of people know now, he holds all the speed records on everything all over the world. You know, climbing rocks. Everywhere. Um, he goes as fast as anybody can imagine, faster yep. than most people can imagine. So, so when you go climbing with Alex, you go really fast. And so he did this rather, rather small big wall, but nonetheless, it is a big wall in Yosemite called uh, Royal Arches. And we did it like in, okay, Tom, we were coming down by supper time, you know. So it was it was not easy for me, mm-hmm. but I did it and I got to the top and we rappelled down, you know, we were home, back for supper. Wow. <laughs> so, so all the way back down, rappelling back down, I'm thinking to myself, huh, I just did a big wall <laughs> and it's not even dinner time. Yet. Maybe I could do that other big wall down the road, you know, <laughs> El Capitan. So he would, he wasn't living at home back by that time, he was living you know, at his own home, but he would come through and pick up pick up stuff or restock or, or go to the airport or whatever. So every time he'd come through the house, I'd you know show him what I would the climbs I had been looking at for that year. Say, yeah, you think we could do this? You think I could do this? And so every year we did one of those. And then that year, after Royal Arches, he came through the house, and I I said, kind of kind of half jokingly. I mean, I didn't really think he would say yes, but I said. You think maybe someday you could leave me up El Cap? And he said, "Yeah, sure." <laughs> <laughs> he yeah, probably sure. said it as nonchalant yeah, sure, as that too. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, sure. But you have to learn how to jump. And I didn't know what that meant, but I didn't care. I had a yes, yeah, sure, and I was gonna hold him to it. So he left again, and then I found out what jugging was, mm-hmm. and that means you know using the ascenders to go up the rope okay. instead of climbing on the rock. I didn't actually climb rock on El Cap. I climbed, I jugged up the ropes. I was on the rope. Okay, I climbed gotcha. up the rope. I had two handheld gizmos. Mm-hmm. They're they're called Jumars, and they you clip it onto the rope, and they, each one has teeth, so it, it okay. you can push it up, but it can't come down. Yeah. 
and they atta- that attaches to your harness and to your feet with long straps. Mm-hmm. And um, so you, it's kind of like a, you make the rope into a ladder. Okay. I'll, I'll make sure I look it up in the show notes and I'll have links yeah, for everybody yeah. so they can so see. Those are called, yeah, yeah that would be a good idea. They're called Jumars and climbers all call them jugs. Okay, cool. To, to, to go up, to go, to go up the rope like that is called jugging. So, you know, that's how I got the idea. And I, I, I proposed the idea kind of thinking, oh, he would never agree to that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I mean, I'm, I was 66 years old at that point and, and I was in good shape. I mean, I had been running marathons and mm-hmm. I've been climbing for you know eight years by then. Um, but still, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I was old enough to be a grandmother. Do grandmothers grow up El Cap? <laughs> so apparently they don't because I'm the oldest woman to ever do it. I mean, it's so then, it's just crazy to think, right? Like the fact that he won just was like, sure, you can do it. Yeah, yeah. So over like, the years, though, over the years, though, I learned what his yeah sure meant. Okay, I mean, it's not it's not crazy because uh, you know I would show him all these climbs that I researched and say, you think I could do Mathis Crest? You think I could do Tanaya? And he'd say, yeah, sure, and. Little by little, I began to realize what he means by that. You know, it's, it's, yeah, sure. If you want to take the time to learn what you need to know and to build up the physical skills to do it and this and then, yeah, sure. (laughs) It's a, it's a, yeah, sure, but there's a lot embedded into it that you have to do the work. Yes, exactly. Okay. That's that's interesting. Yeah, he knew that I knew that and and I knew that he knew that. And so Mm -hmm. we, started working on it. You have your own language. It's, hard. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating that you can get yourself to attempt these things. Like you said, right? Like do, do people, do grandmas climb up El Cap or just climb in general? Right. I never thought about that. Yeah. I never considered, I mean, age is just a number. Yeah. Age is whatever you tell yourself it is. <laughs> and I, even when I was a kid, I never believed that I would, you know, follow the big boys climbing up on the garage roofs and stuff, I would follow them up the trees. And uh, even though I was a little girl, you know, I wasn't supposed to be able to do all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So I never believed that. And, and, and it's really a shame that television and, and internet, but mostly television really pounds that into us that you're supposed to do this at this mm-hmm. age. You're supposed to look like this. You're supposed to dress like this. That's all nonsense. <laughs> I don't know. Un- I've never understood why people buy into that, why people believe it. I just never understood that. I never believed it when I was a kid. I still don't believe it. I feel like it's subliminal messaging. You know, you just get bombarded by it so much. Well, I was too. So what? Say no. (laughs) (laughs) Just just say no. I mean, you know, if you want to be a climber and you're a little girl, so what? Just do it. I've, I've never understood why people acquiesce to that and accept accept the roles that are forced on them. I, I feel like that. for you, you have this sense of self or at least rebellious to say, mm, maybe, maybe this is what, you know, I should do in quotes, but I'm going to go figure it out first and then I'll make the decision whether or not I should do that. Be it my yeah, choice. Exactly. You know. Exactly, but everybody can do that. Everybody <laughs> could do that. If they would just turn off the stupid television, everybody could do that. You know, it's just, it's so sad because this is, these kinds of choices are open to everybody, but most people buy into the limits that are placed on them and to the little boxes that they're forced to live in. Mm-hmm. I've just never understood that. So would you say that someone, you know, everything that you want to be, the only person you should listen to is who? Yourself. 
<laughs> and I, I, I led you on that one because I knew your answer. <laughs> no, no, yeah, I was. You had sent me some questions to, to think about, and that was one of them. Yeah, for for kids, you know, in school, especially high school, college mm-hmm. kids, there's only one real tool that you need to succeed in life. You ready for this? Mm-hmm. Your journal. Ooh. If you have a journal, if you write in a journal every day or every two days or whatever you can manage, if you, if you write, sit down and block everything out for half hour or whatever, 10 minutes every day and write in your journal and just really honestly think about yourself, about your life and you know what's going on. Mm-hmm. You don't need, you don't need a shrink. You don't need a guidance counselor. You don't need advice from people. You don't need, cause it's, it's, it's all in there. It's all in you <laughs> and you just need to get it straightened out and figured out. And that's what a journal can do for you. Mm-hmm. Would you have any prompts for someone who says like, I don't know what to write about. Right. Or things like that. Would you, or would you just say, just sit there in uncomfortable silence and then it'll start coming. Well, I don't know how uncomfortable, but yeah, <laughs> it'll, no, I mean that, that, yeah, writer's block is another thing I don't understand. <laughs> the world is so interesting and there are so many things happening in your life at any given moment. How could you not have a million things to write about? You know, what did, what did your aunt Clara just say to you on the phone? How did you feel about that? Is it going to affect your life? Is it going to change? Is it going to, you know, is it going to give you college tuition? Is it going to make you miserable? Why? I, I mean, it's a silly, silly example, but anything happening in your life. I'm. Mean, who did you see in the supermarket this morning? Mm-hmm. Did you know? Did they have one leg? <laughs> um, you know, were they? Did they have one leg and they wanted to clean your windshields for you as mm-hmm. you came out? You know, what'd you think about that? How would you, what would you do if you had one leg? I mean, you know, there's, it all relates, inter, interrelates. And, and there's, a journal is an amazingly effective tool to figure out your life. You know, it really is. It, it's, it's really interesting that I never thought about journaling in this way, but what it, this is the first time I've ever thought about this, but in this way is that it makes you an active observer of your own life. Yes, yes. You know, that's what at least the way you're explaining it to me is, is that what it actually does. It says, how do I tell the story of my life, no matter how yeah. mundane or boring I think it is. Yes. And when you're telling it to yourself, you have to be totally honest. Mm-hmm. You can't fib to yourself, you know, you can fib to other people, but you can't fib to yourself. <laughs> I mean, and, and that's what, that's what, it, I mean, even in like, therapy or whatever, or talking to a counselor, you can tell them whatever you want to tell them, but in your own head, you can't fit to yourself. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. I mean, for me, the thing I, I grew up with, you know, it's the stories we tell ourselves, right? The things you tell yourself you can't do or you shouldn't do, right? Those boxes you put uh-huh. yourself in. And, and I was notorious of saying, I'm not X when I was younger. Yeah. You yeah. Know, I would yeah, look around and, yeah. and see people and say, nope, I'm not like them. I'm not that. Right. And, and right. by doing that, it like shut and locked the door before I even knew right. I could do right. that. Right. Right. <laughs> and, and our society is rife with that. You're not fit enough to do this. You're not mm-hmm. skinny enough to do this. You're not smart enough to do this. Why do people believe those things? That's what I don't get. Why did, <laughs> why they allow themselves to be convinced like that? A, a journal can help you work your way through that. 
Yeah, it reminds you of like the like the language we use to describe yourself. You know, like I am. Mm -hmm. Like when you say I yeah. am something, it's like I, the way I look at it now is like who you are is not what you do. You know, you can right. you can not do a true. whole bunch of things, but that's just the limited representation of who you are. Because exactly. we can never fit the dynamic and complexities of an, an entire individual in just one category. Right, exactly. And when you do fit that itself, you become like an ideologue or a, or a zealot in some way if you buy into just one category so often. I, I just find it dangerous for someone where if you buy into just one aspect of, of your personality too much, then you, you, know, you become controlled by that to some degree. Right, right, right. Right, exactly. I mean, even my son is a good example of that. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the quintessential climber. I mean, right. he's done things. He's done things that no other climbers could even think of doing. Mm -hmm. But that's not all he is. I mean, he also has his foundation where he's making you know people's lives better all over the world, and he's you know helping people in so many ways mm -hmm. in so many venues. And so yeah, even somebody that focused, you know. There's no no reason on earth, like you say, to limit your your self description. Like mm -hmm. I, I think honestly, what 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 it comes down to for me is like to some degree we do specialize, but what at one point? Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. That specialization allows you to open doors easier than if you're just a beginner. You know, you right. you're able to right. you know jump ahead from the starting line. You know, a few a few notches to allow yourself to uh -huh. have access to things to make a bigger impact than you would otherwise. Right, exactly, exactly, yeah. So. Yeah, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about my book. I mean, I've always been a writer. I, I've always said, well, I'm a freelance writer. I'm mm -hmm. just a freelance writer. But I, then I started doing books. And just yesterday, I got I got a message from some uh, a woman in Ecuador. I got a, a, not a message, what do you call it, in Instagram, a, a comment in Instagram. Yeah. A woman in, in Ecuador who, she wrote to me and said she's, in chapter eight of my book, and she—it's so inspiring. Da 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 da. She went on and on <laughs> about it. She got it. She got it from Spain. It was just published in Spain, and mm -hmm. it's coming out soon in France and Italy as well. And um, Spain, you know, ships to all Spanish-speaking countries. So she, the book, you know, this book that came from writing about uh, raising Alex and writing about climbing. Who would have sunk? You know, now it's gone around the world. Oh, no, I'm getting. I'm getting mail from foreign countries from people I don't know about mm -hmm. how inspiring this story is. So yeah, you never know. Yeah. Your words are getting translated into, you know, all these different languages yeah. now, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> to, to bring yeah, it back yeah. full circle with, you know, traveling the world yeah. and sharing experiences. Yep. Exactly. It, it is, it is one of those things that I find fascinating being able to share stories unfiltered, you know, providing, yeah. providing information from people to say, this is my life and this is how it happened to work out for me. And not to say this is how yeah. you should live your life, but to yeah, let others make a distinction and say, here's what I took away from life. And here's like nuggets that you may wrap into how you do it for yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, absolutely. And this brings me to it, it, struggles, you know, dealing with either inner turmoil or just things that life throws at you that you don't obviously plan for mm -hmm. how do you how did you deal with struggle if there's a specific event or just broad brush for it that's a big question i know it is 
That's a big question. Once you've read my book, you'll understand what I mean by mm-hmm. how big a question that is. Because I, uh, I, a large part, a big key, if you will, in in my own arsenal to fight to fighting against upheaval, mm-hmm. you know, in life, was the journal. Yeah. Really, I I would have gone crazy without that. <laughs> I mean, I, I was in a non-marriage for many years. My husband was probably autistic. I don't know what the problem was. and uh, He just ignored everybody. Had nothing to do with anybody. And mm-hmm. I, I was his wife. I thought I was his wife. I was supposed to talk to him, and, you know, but wouldn't talk. He wouldn't. It was crazy time. And at the same time, I was raising my two wonderful little kids and mm-hmm. I had this like dichotomy going on, you know, I trying to deal with him and I was crazy making it. And then I'd turn around and I'd want to be mom, you know, a loving mom. And yeah. it was, just, that was crazy times. And so I, I wrote out of desperation. I wrote in the journal all the time and that's what ha- helped me survive that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, yeah, all, that's always helped you know, all my life. I can only imagine what that's like to, to not have, you know, craving some sort of response, but not mm. being able to receive it. Yeah. And the only outlet you yeah. have is to write it on a page, like what to hope. Yeah. You yeah. Know. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been a been a wild ride mm-hmm. kind of learning going on. <laughs> so the other thing that we could bring up here is, is just like in the last five years, since you're just so growth oriented is what were you have become better at saying either no to and it doesn't have to be no either like what have you become better at saying yes to or just realizations or changes of approach that you've realized are not working for you anymore huh that's a biggie too <laughs> <laughs> we need at least another hour <laughs> well there's always room Say for a no round two <laughs> uh, yeah right <laughs> saying no to yeah I've, yeah I've been changing my tolerance level for a lot of those things yeah I, I grew. I was raised to never say no. Mm-hmm. You know, I I was raised to always acquiesce to other people's wishes. You know, the adults around me, the grown-ups. You know, that kind of thing. Because I had to help my mother, and I had to be there, and I had to. You know, that was my life. And so that stays with you. And but there's a lot of people out there who are kind of don't treat you right. Yeah. <laughs> so I say, and and it, I've been growing into learning how to say no to people. Um, not say no outright, you no, know, no, but, but not to hang around with people who are toxic to me, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. Not to let what toxic people do or say bother me. I get used to, you know, so I've been working on that and that, yeah, that's a biggie. On a, on a more mundane note, I've been working on, you know, I'm a, I'm a homeowner. I have been mm-hmm. since my husband died. I, you know, wound up with two houses. And so I'm on everybody's list. I get, just like today, I got a big, thick wad of mail in my mailbox, you know, mm-hmm. snail mail, paper mail. Every envelope, there must have been about nine or ten, every one was a plea for my money, asking for my money. Mm. Please support us. Please support us. Send me your money. Every one of them. And so at the beginning, you know, when I became a homeowner on my own after my husband died and my kids were gone, you know, on their own lives, I was alone. And I get all this mail and I think, oh, yeah, I should support this group. Oh, and yeah, I uh, should support this. I feel really bad about, you know, saving the the, the whales or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. saving the national parks and, and all that stuff. And 
so I would I would keep all these things and they would accumulate and you know, every once in a while I'd have to just kind of sweep off the desk and, and start again. And so now I just, I throw them all out and once in a while I go online and decide what I do want to support and I do that online. But uh, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous how much people demand and ask of you yeah. if you let them, if you let them. And so learning how to not let them. <laughs> yeah. It, I, I feel I feel like the attention is, is kind of like the the ultimate resource for the individual, you know, how you yeah, choose exactly. to use your attention, you know, with how much it can right. be fragmented your, now. Yeah. Your attention and especially, of course, your time. I mean, we have so little time on this planet. You have to decide where you want to spend it. Mm-hmm. For and that's that's another thing I've been learning to say yes to is the adventures, you know. I, yeah, I'm all kinds of adventures. I I kind I didn't buy into the this you know you're old enough to be a grandmother kind mm-hmm. of thing, but but still uh, I probably shouldn't pile it on too much. But heck no, <laughs> if I want to go to Greece to the Leonidio, the you know climbing festival, darn it, I'm going to go. And, you know, life is short. There, there's no boundaries for you at all. <laughs> Not really. Not Life really. is your it's playground. <laughs> Life that's right. Uh, well, well, the boundaries right now are, you know, I'm writing a lot of books and that takes hundreds and hundreds of hours every week and uh, a lot of time, but, but that's time well spent. You know, mm-hmm. that's, I'm, you know, getting out there and meeting such fascinating people all over the world. I spoke in England this past, whatever it was, November, and that was so much fun. I'd love to go back and do that. So, yeah adventures and That's, i'm open so how I'm, now that you've mentioned writing so many times I, I forgot to ask is what is your process like is is writing just something that you just do it's just like your outlet to the world with you know kind of comes from journaling well, to some degree yeah it's all kind of intertwined it depends on what kind of writing i mean i still do freelance writing i do articles and essays for magazines and mm-hmm. stuff and that's a very definite process. You know, I outline what I want to do, what I want to say, what I want to talk about, and then I just go do it, you know, and then I go back and reread and stuff. That's like, well, I, like writing for a school essay kind of thing, you know. Yeah, formulaic. Say what you want to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, essays are a little different. Obviously, essays are more from the heart. and mm-hmm. But still, they have a purpose, uh, you know, like a, a goal statement, if you will. And uh, I love that kind of thing. It's, it's got a definite beginning and end and I, I start and I get there and, and it's very satisfying. Mm-hmm. Books, books are a, a grander scale. You know, books are a little bit different. I have, I have a lot of books out and they're all very different. My latest published book this past October was my, the second edition of my French textbook. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so yeah. So doing a French textbook alone, I mean, most textbooks have like three or four or five authors, mm-hmm. on, but I did this one by myself and then published by a publisher in San Diego and uh, it's for college level French. And so that's, that's a totally different way of writing, totally yeah, different absolutely. approach to the whole project. You know, it's more scientific. It's, it's more, yes, yeah, more scientific. So, yeah. So it depends what kind of writing and, and writing a book, book like what well, they're calling it, my book, a memoir, the, the sharp end of life, okay. they're calling it a memoir. I never thought of it as a memoir, <laughs> but I guess it is. But writing something like that is a totally different experience. That's a very visceral level of writing. And, but at the same time, once you've got it on the page, then you need to make it more, not palatable, exactly more uh, saleable, more, more approachable for the readers. You mm-hmm. know? 
Uh, so that's a different kind of process altogether. So I could, oh, I could go on for days about this process. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a whole separate podcast because I'm, I'm honestly really fascinated yes, exactly. about writing and yep, yep. overall because, you know, again, as, as an engineer, I've, I've, you know, you hear people say, well, you're not good at communicating. So then my immediate reaction is, okay, if we're not, if I'm not supposed to be good at this, how do I get better at it? And usually that means yeah, do yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Just do it over and over and over every day, every day, and yeah. you'll get better at it. And anything you do every day, all the time, you're going to get better at it. Mm-hmm. You know? That's why my son's out there climbing every single day of his life. You know? So, you know, we're getting close to an hour, and I know you have another podcast to go do. And I do. I, I have a quick question. I, just thinking about it right now, and I'm I'm gonna test it out on you because I've stayed away from it for okay. a while. But it's oh, good, an experiment. I love it. Yeah, it's an experimental question because I've been thinking about doing this as like a wrap up question. But what is okay feeding curiosity to you? Huh. Yeah, <laughs> I've been thinking about that. Uh, I've been, you know, since I learned the name of your podcast, I've been mm-hmm. thinking about that. We're born with limitless, boundless curiosity. You know, if you watch little kids, you know, two-year-olds, three-year-olds, boundless curiosity. And that applies to every domain of life, languages, math, how things happen, engineering, you know, everything. Kids Mm -hmm. want to know everything. And then they grow up and go to school and that's beaten out of them. And that's so sad to watch. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it happens at home, you know, the parents say, oh, shut up, go, go watch your program or whatever, you know, it's beaten out of them. Mm-hmm. It's, they're, it's taught out of them. Like learning language is taught out of, out of kids. That it's, it's sad to watch for me. And feeding curiosity is the, the best thing we can do for children and for anybody, for adults as well. But I'm going back to the source, if you will, you know, because it's could We start to lose that when, we, when, when we're little, yeah. when we go to school. And so feeding curiosity is like the single most important job in this life. So good, 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 good on you for the, for the title you chose. <laughs> <I love it. laughs> well, you know, it, it was one of those things that I, you know, it, it sounds funny to think about it now because it's probably going to get written about one day, but it's like, I woke, I went to sleep one day and I was like, well, what do I do? Like, what is it like? Cause I'm just so interested in just about everything. And I'm like, well, I'm just, I'm just yeah, feeding yeah, curiosity. I'm and I was like, right. Oh my God. That's it. That's it. <laughs> you know, and that's then it's it. like. And that's exactly. Looked, and that's what my life has been. That's what my entire life has been about. I mean, I've been an orchestra conductor. I've worked through the airlines. I've been a tour guide, a multi, multilingual tour guide wow. in several places. I've, I've been a professor of five different languages all over the world. I've done all kinds of things. And every one of those feeds a different kind of curiosity. Absolutely. Uh, I couldn't agree more. And I'm honestly just blown away that you have taken the time to talk to me. And this has been an amazing conversation. And yeah, it's been fun. (laughs) There's more than enough time to go go into a round two, but I really don't want to take up too much more of your time to get ready for another other time, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I want to take a quick second and talk about how you can support our show. I believe this is the most honest way that I can connect with you, the listener, and put it in front of everyone. You can support our show for as little as 99 cents a month. We release four podcasts a month, all at an average length of about an hour. That means you are supporting us at just 25 cents an hour. That's that's cheaper than the dollar menu. I think it's safe to say that we provide more value than that. And if you learn anything from our content, please consider becoming a supporter today with the link in the description of any episode 
or on the website at feedingcuriosity.net. And with that, thanks for listening and please enjoy the show. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Feeding Curiosity. I hope you all learned something or at least got you thinking. If you want to dive in deeper, please head over to feedingcuriosity.net to find related links or just more podcasts and blogs that we've posted there. On top of this, please consider subscribing to our newsletter to stay up to date on the latest happenings on the website. Thank you all for joining me one more time and we'll catch you all in the next episode.